for our What's the Difference series. We'll be looking at page 58, page 58. And if you need a notebook, then get their attention. It'll be on page 58 that we'll start in just a moment. Let me announce some things very quickly. This Wednesday resumes our midweek program. We didn't meet last Wednesday because of Thanksgiving, but 7 o'clock here. We have ministries for uh, all ages. We have a rummage sale, sale kind of in quotes because uh, it's just for a donation, any donation amount you want to give for whatever items you want to take from rooms 34 and 36 starting this Wednesday and then for the next uh, Wednesday after that and the two Sundays uh, on each side of those. Uh, that is just stuff that our uh, teen group has uh, acquired over the last couple of years for two fundraiser rummage sales that they've had. They're going to get rid of what they can, giving you first dibs, and then they're going to give the rest of it to the Salvation Army. So you can take a look starting Wednesday in rooms 34 and 36. Ladies, the annual Ladies Christmas Advent is Thursday evening, the 11th from 7 to 9. And we need to know if you're coming, and we need to know if you're bringing uh, guests. And if you have an approximate number for that, that would be great. And also, if a couple of you uh, could serve as table hosts for that, uh, that would be helpful also. But for all of those things, let us know you're coming, let us know you're bringing some guests, and uh, whether or not you can be a a table host, oh, and also whether or not you can uh, help bring some food. All of those things are at the Information Center. So before you leave today, ladies, preferably, if you would stop by the Information Desk uh, and address those, that would be terrific. And then men, on Saturday the 13th, two weeks from yesterday, there is a breakfast uh, for all our men are invited. Whether you're a member of our church or not, you're you're invited, and that's here uh, at the Ministry Center at 9 o'clock on Saturday the, the 13th. All right, page 58 in our What's the Difference series. And we have, for the last several weeks, been looking at, begun the process of looking at the development of denominations. Because one of the questions that many people have, that I've been asked many times over the years, and perhaps you have as well, is what's the difference between, and thus the name of this series, what's the difference? What's the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a Methodist and a Catholic and so on? And people see so many different churches with different signs and names on them that it becomes just a morass that is is very confusing. So this is designed over the next few weeks to try to take some of that confusion out, to give you an idea of some of the distinctives and some of the historical uh, events that led to the development of the different denominations. And in doing that, we started with the year 1517 a few weeks ago and the beginning of something called the Protestant Reformation spearheaded by Martin Luther. And in doing that, we've been the last few weeks looked been looking at the issues that caused Luther and then others to protest the then-dominant church and seek to reform it. And beginning on page 37, you don't need to turn there, you can if you want, but on page 37, we started a section called Authority and the Gospel, Authority and the Gospel. And we tried to, over the last few weeks, show that the gospel that is proclaimed in Roman Catholicism is different than the gospel that is given in Scripture. And the reason that they're different is because they have different sources of authority. The, the, the Bible is the sole source of authority for spiritual truth for uh, those of us who uh, believe in the biblical gospel. 
But in Roman Catholicism, it's not just the Bible. It is the Bible, but it is the Bible and. It is the Bible and church tradition and what's called the magisterium of the church. And I gave you quotations in your notes about that from Roman Catholic uh, sources themselves about the fact that the uh, sacred tradition, as they call it, is to be venerated uh, and submitted to uh, just as you do sacred scripture. So in Roman Catholicism, you have these multi-sources of authority rather than one source of authority, the Bible. And as a result of that, then a number of things are taught that are not only extra-biblical, but in some cases unbiblical. Extra-biblical just means it's something that's outside the Bible. And there could be a teaching that's outside the Bible, but not necessarily contrary to the Bible. But if something is not only outside the Bible, but contrary to the Bible, is directly refuted by what the Bible says, well, then you have an even larger problem. And so on page 40, beginning on page 45, we looked at when sola scriptura, when the scriptures alone is rejected, here are the kinds of things that flow from that. And we've seen that some of those things are, for example, teachings about Mary that are not found in the Bible. They are extra biblical and are contrary to the Bible as, as well. That Mary uh, was born without the stain of original sin. That's a dogma taught in Roman Catholicism that is nowhere found in, in Scripture that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she never had any other children other than Jesus. And that's directly refuted in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse, verses 1 uh, through 4. And that Mary uh, never died, or that Mary, if she did die, she wasn't in the grave very long. The Catholic Church hasn't defined that. They just call it the assumption of Mary that her body and soul were assumed uh, uh, directly into heaven without her body seeing corruption. So whether that means she didn't die or not is unclear, but it doesn't matter. It's something that's not taught in Scripture. So Mary was, Mary was the ever-virgin Mary. That's what she's called, perpetual virginity. Uh, Mary was sinless. Uh, Mary uh, never died, or if she died, she wasn't in the grave very long. In all of these respects, she is almost like a female uh, deity. She's almost like a female version of, of Christ. And none of these things are, are taught in Scripture. That's the key point. Well, the church then has developed a number of dogmas. Yes, there are the Marian dogmas. But then there are the dogmas, authoritative teachings that must be believed by all the faithful that relate to what is necessary for one to achieve heaven. And we've seen that. There is a works-oriented gospel, a works-oriented approach that is required in order for one to, to make it to heaven. And those works are centered on the sacraments of the church, and in particular, two sacraments, the one at the beginning of one's uh, uh, introduction into the church, baptism, and then the ongoing sacrament of covering, the ongoing sacrament of atonement, and that is the mass that is observed weekly. And you have those two, and every Roman Catholic is to participate in those. And in baptism, your sins are washed away, all of your sins from the past. If in the case of an infant, then it is the stain of original sin, going back to our first father and mother, uh, Adam and Eve. In the case of someone who gets baptized as an adult, it's the sins that they've committed themselves 
in their, in their life, but it's all their past sins. And then with their future sins now, those are not atoned for. Those have to be regularly atoned for by participation in the Mass, which is, an, in the words that we saw in the notes, an unbloody sacrifice. It is Christ being re-sacrificed each time the Mass is, is performed. So it is a works-oriented system to how one has a relationship with God and spends eternity in, in heaven. Those works are the sacraments, as I say. They also include indulgences. And if you've been with us, you've heard us talk about what those are. Uh, these are prayers. These are prayer cards. These are alms that are given. And all of these are put in something called the treasury of merit that the church maintains. It's not a, it's not a real box. It's not a real place. But it's called that, and the church alone uh, and its uh, officials have the keys to the treasury. And they can unlock those, and they can dispense those for the sake of folks who have died and gone to purgatory and are awaiting their release from purgatory into heaven. So it's an elaborate system of works for one to achieve heaven. Now on page 58... We want to look at the issue of the authority of the Pope. And at the top of page 58, I ask the question, is the Pope Catholic? Now, sometimes that's said in jest. Is the Pope Catholic? And of course he's Catholic. And I'm actually asking it seriously. Is the Pope Catholic? Here's why. If you understand what the word Catholic means, the word Catholic means universal. So it's really asking the question, is the Pope the universal head of the church? We're going to see the answer is no. But in Roman Catholicism, the answer is yes. The Pope is the universal head of the universal church. And, uh, and so it's actually a, a serious question. Now, some of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I believe in God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And, but then uh, at one point in the creed, there's a line that says, I believe in one holy Catholic church. And when it says Catholic, that's Catholic with a small c. That's not, I believe, in one holy Roman Catholic Church. We will see why it's called Roman in a bit, because it has Roman origins. The Apostles' Creed came about in the second century, and the Roman Catholic Church didn't exist in the second century. So when the Apostles' Creed was written, and it says one holy Catholic Church, it means one holy universal church, all of the saints, all of those who belong to Jesus who are part of, part of the church. So if you're ever in a church that has the, uh, has the uh, ritual of reciting the Apostles' Creed, which is a very fine thing. Uh, when you hear Catholic, don't get scared. I have had people come and tell me, I was in this church, you know, and it wasn't even a Catholic church. And they were doing this Apostles' Creed, and they say, I believe in one holy Catholic church. Holy cow, we're not, we're, we're, I'm not even in a Catholic church. And they're professing fealty to the, the Catholic church. And, and that's not what that is. It's not the Roman Catholic Church. It's just the church universal. So when I say at the top of page 58 and ask, is the Pope Catholic? I'm saying, is the Pope the universal head of the church? Having seen that the Roman Catholic Church defines dogma on the basis of what apologist James White calls sola ecclesia, that is ultimately the church alone, we now turn to the question of papal authority. And we'll survey what the Roman Catholic Church teaches regarding the Pope and how it stands up to the scrutiny of church history and the Bible. So we start in the year 1302. We're not going to, I'm not going to read this whole page. You'll be glad to know, but you're welcome to do so. But this is a pronouncement from Pope Boniface VIII. 
in the year 1302, Unum Sanctum. And in that, I notice down at the very bottom of page 58, where he says, Furthermore, that every human creature is subject to the Roman pontiff, this we declare, say, define, and pronounce, to be altogether necessary to salvation. So, not only is uh, the Pope in Roman Catholicism the head of all Christians, but it is altogether necessary for salvation for each person who professes Christ to be subject to the Roman pontiff. That's what Unum Sanctum is saying. And then on page 59, in the year 1870, the year 1870, Vatican I, an ecumenical council, there have been several ecumenical councils over the centuries that have been gathered to look at matters of church ethics and doctrine, and this is one of those called Vatican I because, as you see just below that, there was a Vatican II in the 1960s. But in the year 1870, the ecumenical full gathering of the bishops and cardinals in Rome to discuss doctrinal matters uh, was held and it's, it's at the Vatican and thus called Vatican I. But it's at Vatican I that the infallibility of the Pope was declared to be a dogma in the year 1870, the infallibility of the Pope. Now, I want to read this, and then I'll explain what we read. Therefore, faithfully adhering to the tradition received from the beginning of the Christian faith, for the glory of God our Savior, the exaltation of the Christian religion and the salvation of Christian people, the sacred council approving, we teach and define that it is a dogma divinely revealed. That the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in discharge of the office of pastor and doctor of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith and morals to be held by the universal church, by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter, is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine Redeemer willed that his church should be endowed for defining doctrine regarding faith or morals." And that therefore such definitions of the Roman pontiff are irreformable of themselves and not from the consent of the church. But if anyone, which God may avert, presume to contradict this our definition, let him be anathema. This is the teaching of Catholic truth from which no one can deviate without loss of faith and salvation. The first condition of salvation is to keep the rule of the true faith. Oh, wow, it's a mouthful. What is all of that? The Pope, uh, the, the, the Bishop of Rome, is said to be, according to this pronouncement from Vatican I, uh, infallible. And it says in what we just read, infallible when he speaks ex cathedra. That is a Latin term, ex cathedra, which means this, out of the chair or from the chair. So when the Pope speaks in his official capacity from the chair of Peter in Rome, as official representative of the entire universal church, when he speaks and pronounces on faith or morals, then what he says is infallible. That's what that's saying. And it's saying that this teaching of infallibility is itself a dogma divinely revealed. That word dogma means an authoritative teaching which must be believed. An authoritative teaching which must be believed. So, all are to be subject to the Roman pontiff, a la 1302 Unum Sanctum on page 57. And now, or page 58. 
And now Vatican I is saying that the pronouncements of the popes are infallible and because they're infallible, they cannot be reformed and they don't need the consent of the church. So when he speaks about a, a matter of faith, of truth, then it cannot be changed. So when he spoke in 1950, as we saw earlier, about Mary being assumed bodily into heaven, that's a dogma revealed to the Pope, an authoritative teaching that must be believed, and it is, uh, it is, it is required that all faithful Roman Catholics submit to it and all who claim to be Christians, according to Roman Catholicism, else you're not, else you're not a Christian. And if anyone says otherwise, if anyone says that the Pope is not in this position and does not speak ex cathedra and with infallibility, then let him be uh, damned, let him be anathema. So it's a serious matter in, indeed. Now, what did the early church teach about the Pope and papal infallibility? On page 60, we have some of that for you. One indication comes from what's called one of the early church fathers, a man named Cyprian. You'll read in church history, you'll read of the church fathers. And the church fathers are those in the first centuries of the church that led the church and helped the church establish itself. And there are a number of names that fit under that category, but one of those is, is Cyprian. And note what's said here. Johannes Caston, a Roman Catholic historian and Catholic patristic scholar. Patristic is, means father, church fathers. So he's a scholar on the church fathers. He's an historian and patristic scholar. Commented, thus he, Cyprian, understands Matthew 16, 18 of the whole episcopate, the various members of which, attached to one another by the laws of charity and concord, thus render the church universal as a single, single body. Now let me stop there. He's, he, Cyprian commented on this passage in Matthew 16, 18. Now, what is that passage? Why is it important? That's the passage where Jesus was asking his first followers, the apostles, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say you're uh, Elijah. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says to him in Matthew 16, uh, 16 and verse 18, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now that is the passage, the main passage, Matthew 16, 18, where the Roman Catholic Church takes that to mean that Peter became the first pope and that all now future popes are successors to Peter. So from the very beginning there was, according to Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church. And the first pope of the church was Peter, based upon this statement in Matthew 16, 18. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, we want to see if that's what the church uh, has, has always believed, and more importantly, if that's what the Bible teaches. But Cyprian said this, that italicized second paragraph. No one among us sets himself up as a bishop of bishops or by tyranny and terror forces his colleagues to compulsory obedience, seeing that every bishop in the freedom of his liberty and power possesses the right to his own mind and can no more be judged by another than he himself can judge another. 
We must all await the judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ, who singly and alone has power both to appoint us to the government of his church and to judge our acts therein. Do you see what Cyprian is saying? We don't have a pope. We don't have a bishop in Rome who is a bishop of bishops. That's what Cyprian is is saying. And then Caston says this, From these words it's evident that Cyprian does not recognize a primacy of jurisdiction of the bishop of Rome over his colleagues, nor does he think Peter was given power over the other apostles. No more did Peter claim it. Even Peter, whom the Lord first chose and upon whom he built his church, when Paul later disputed with him over circumcision, did not claim insolently any prerogative for himself, nor make any arrogant assumptions, nor say that he had the primacy and ought to be obeyed. Do you guys see what's happening there? In Galatians 2, the Bible has this incident where the apostle Paul confronted Peter to his face because he was wrong about a matter. And in that confrontation, you have nowhere Peter going, uh, Paul, remember Matthew 16, 18? You know who you're dealing with? You're talking to the Pope here. Okay? So let's get it straight, who's boss? All right? I mean, none of that happens, and that's what, that's what Caston is saying here. And the reason none of that happened is because the other apostles did not recognize Peter as in authority over, over them. And then Cyprian is saying, in the successors to Peter, the bishop of Rome is not in authority over the other leaders of the church. Then in the middle of page 60, you have the Sixth Ecumenical Council in the 7th century. This council is well known in church history for its official condemnation of a number of leading Eastern bishops as well as a bishop of Rome for embracing and promoting heretical teachings. Pope Honorius who reigned as Bishop of Rome from 625 to 638, was personally condemned as a heretic by the Sixth Ecumenical Council. This was ratified by two succeeding ecumenical councils. He was also condemned by name by Pope Leo II and by every pope up through the 11th century who took the oath of papal office. In his classic and authoritative series on the history of the councils, Roman Catholic historian Charles Hefele affirms this verdict in relating the following irrefutable facts regarding Arnorius and the Sixth Ecumenical Council. It is in the highest degree startling, even scarcely credible, that an ecumenical council should punish with anathema a pope as a heretic. That, however, the Sixth Ecumenical Council Synod actually condemned Arnorius on account of heresy is clear beyond all doubt. These facts are highly significant. Von Dollinger was the leading Roman Catholic historian of the 19th century. He taught church history for 47 years, and he makes these comments. Top of page 61. This one fact that a great council universally received afterwards without hesitation throughout the church and presided over by papal legates pronounced the dogmatic decision of a pope heretical and anathematized him by name as a heretic is a proof clear as the sun at noonday that the notion of any peculiar enlightenment or inerrancy of the popes was then utterly unknown to the whole church. That's in the 11th century. He's uh, that up to the 11th century, he says. This was completely unknown. But in 1302, Unum Sanctum says everyone must be subject. And then by 1870, you have the infallibility of of the pope. Now, this notion then of papal infallibility, the church fathers didn't believe that. Uh, in church history, up to the 11th century, it was not believed as, as well. But yet, in Roman Catholic writings on this uh, notion, 
It's said to be, top of page 61, the unanimous consent of the fathers. And I have a question mark there for reasons you'll see. Recall Vatican I's official pronouncement regarding papal infallibility in, in 1870. And the page number is wrong, but it's just a couple pages. The same council declared that the primacy of the Pope is, quote, the clear doctrine of Holy Scripture has been, quote, ever understood by the Catholic Church and that those who say otherwise have, quote, perverse opinions and are in eternal danger because, quote, this is the teaching of Catholic truth from which no one can deviate without loss of faith and salvation. So, again, let's look at these pronouncements of Vatican I. And I just want to take time to read these on page 61 uh, because they're important. At open variance with this clear doctrine of Holy Scripture, as it has ever been understood by the Catholic Church, are the perverse opinions of those who, while they distort the form of government established by Christ the Lord and His Church, deny that Peter in his single person, preferably to all the other apostles, whether taken separately or together, was endowed by Christ with a true and proper primacy of jurisdiction. Or of those who assert that the same primacy was not bestowed immediately and directly upon blessed Peter himself, but upon the church and through the church on Peter as her minister. If anyone, therefore, shall say that blessed Peter the apostle was not appointed the prince of all the apostles and the visible head of the whole church militant, or that the same directly and immediately received from the same our Lord Jesus Christ a primacy of honor only and not of true and proper jurisdiction, that is, rule, let him be anathema. If then any should deny that it is by institution of Christ the Lord or by divine right that blessed Peter should have a perpetual line of successors in the primacy over the universal church or that the Roman pontiff is the successor of blessed Peter in this primacy, let him be anathema. This is the teaching of Catholic truth from which no one can deviate without loss of faith and salvation. If then, and he shall say that the Roman pontiff has the office merely of inspection or direction and not full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the universal church, not only in things which belong to faith and morals, but also in things which relate to the discipline and government of the church spread throughout the world, or assert that he possesses merely the principal part and not all the fullness of the supreme power, or that the power which he enjoys is not ordinary and immediate both over each and all of the churches and over each and all the pastors and the faithful, let him be anathema. All right. Do you all get the idea? The Pope is in charge. And the Pope is in charge of everything. And the Pope is in charge of everything because Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And Peter was then immediately installed as the first Pope, and then Peter's successors have been the Pope thereafter, and this is the jurisdiction, the government, the rule, the authority that they have. And this has ever been understood by the Catholic Church, says the Catholic Church. And those who say otherwise have, you saw, perverse opinions. So let's look at what the Scriptures say about Peter and Peter's primacy, so-called primacy, and then let's see what the early church also said about it because the claim is the church has always taught this and everybody's always believed this. So page 62, the early church's interpretation. Of the three passages used to support the claims of Vatican I to papal infallibility, Luke 22, John 21, and Matthew 16, none is interpreted by the early church consensus as Vatican I requires. None. 
So first, Luke 22. This is a passage where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, that is Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now that is cited in Vatican I as one of the passages supporting that Peter was made the first pope. But on this passage, George Salmon says, This prayer for Peter is so clearly personal that some Roman Catholic controversialists do not rely on this passage at all. Neither can they produce any early writers who deduce from it anything in favor of the Roman see. Bellarmine can quote nothing earlier than the 11th century except the suspicious evidence of some popes in their own cause, of whom the earliest to speak distinctly is Pope Agatho in his address to the Sixth General Council in 680. So this is not a passage that the early church looked to. John 21, this is the passage that says this, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you, love, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, why did Jesus do that? This is John 22. Jesus has raised from, the, raised from the dead. He has his final days with his first followers, and he speaks these words to, to Peter. But why does he do that? Why does he do this three times with Peter? Can you guys remember anything that Peter did three times? All right. So take a look at the top of page 63 then. Because here's the, uh, this is the commentary from Cyril of Alexandria in the 4th century who said this, If anyone asks for what cause, he asks Simon only, though the other disciples were present, and what he means by feed my lambs and the like, we answered that St. Peter, with the other disciples, had been already chosen to the apostleship. But because meanwhile Peter had fallen, for under great fear he had thrice denied the Lord, he now, he now heals him that was sick and exacts a threefold confession in place of his triple denial, contrasting the former with the latter and compensating the fault with the correction. Very eloquent words. But that's what the fourth century church father, Cyril, says about what that means. And he would be right. Now there's Matthew 16, and this is the main passage where Jesus said to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I'm going to explain what that, a proper understanding of that passage means in just a moment. But remember the claim is that the church has always believed Peter is the first pope, Jesus pronounced that on him in these passages, specifically in this one in Matthew 16. But notice what James White says. The Roman Catholic Lenoy, the French Roman Catholic Lenoy surveyed the patristic evidence, that is, again, the church fathers, and found 17 citations supporting the concept that Peter is the rock of Matthew 16. Please note that this does not mean that all 17 of these fathers also 
felt that this meant that the bishop of Rome was a pope, but only that they saw Matthew 16 and the phrase, this rock, as referring to Peter. However, Lenoy found 16 citations that identified the rock as Christ. He found eight that identified all the apostles together as forming the rock. And he found 44 citations indicating that the rock of Matthew 16 was the confession of faith made by Peter in Jesus Christ. If we add these numbers together, we find that the Roman position, which claims to have always been the faith of the Catholic Church, in Lenoy's survey actually represents 20% of the fathers. 80% of the time then, the early fathers expressed in Vatican I's words, perverse opinions at the very best. Now... So this claim that Peter, and it's always been understood, ever understood by the church, Peter was the first pope and so on, based on Matthew 16, is simply not true. It was not understood that way by the early church fathers and so on. So what does Matthew 16 mean, quickly? Jesus says, you are Peter. Many of you know that Petros, Peter's name, uh, it means, means rock, uh, means uh, little stone. And Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. Now the reason some say that Christ is saying upon this rock, you have to infer that Jesus was pointing to himself. The text doesn't tell you. But if Jesus is saying, your name's Peter, and now he's doing a play on words, but upon this rock, I will build my church, namely me, or the this could refer to the confession that Peter made, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, or it could, and in my personal view, does actually refer to Peter, that he is actually saying, Peter, I'm going to use you in a special way. But that's completely different than saying, Peter, you'll be the Pope. Because, in fact, Peter was used in a very special way. Was he not? So you find in Acts chapter 2, as Jesus has ascended now back to the Father, and the church begins on the day of Pentecost, who is it that speaks up? It's Peter. And so Jesus, in my view, is actually saying to Peter, and we shouldn't be afraid of this because of Roman Catholic false interpretation of this, to simply say, yes, Peter was a choice vessel of the Lord, to be sure. And Jesus did use Peter to build his church, and at the very founding of the church, it was Peter who was there, and Peter was the guy who was always willing to speak up in the earthly ministry of Jesus, often putting his foot in his mouth, but nonetheless willing to speak up, and it was Peter who now, using that same energy and willingness to speak, stands up and speaks on the day of Pentecost. And it's Peter who's thrown in jail, and it's Peter who's willing to undergo these things uh, and sacrifice himself for the sake of Christ and his, and his church. So up until you get to Acts chapter 10, you notice that the central figure in all that is Peter. And God is using Peter in a special way, in the founding of his church. But then, in the last half of the book of Acts, the major player turns from Peter, you, you rarely hear about Peter after that, and becomes Saul of Tarsus and, and Paul. And so God used Peter at the initial founding, and then he used Paul to spread the gospel to beyond the Jews now to the Gentiles, and he used Peter in a very special way. So how is it then that Peter and the other apostles, for that matter, have then the keys to the kingdom. Well, here's how. (laughs) Jesus has entrusted to these guys the gospel. 
And you are the guys who are going to go out and spread this. And you guys are the ones who are going to spread this message of forgiveness. And it is those to whom you go and to whom you proclaim this message and who the Spirit moves on to receive that message that will have their sins forgiven and will have entree into, into heaven. And so that's my understanding of Matthew sixteen eighteen. It is referring to Peter. God used Peter mightily in the founding of the church, but that in no way means that Peter is, is the pope. And uh, there are a lot of varying interpretations of Matthew 16, 18. It could be Jesus himself that's the rock. It could be the confession that Peter made that's the rock. I understand that indeed it is Peter, but as I say, that doesn't make him the Pope. Now, that then raises the question, how did we get here? And that's what I have on page 64. How did we get here, parts one and two? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at how did we get the bishop of Rome to become so powerful and the Roman Catholic uh, machinery to become so elaborate that we have what we see now uh, that is the modern Roman Catholic Church. How did that develop? Where did that come from? And some may think that that started right at the very beginning. Well, it didn't start right at the very beginning. It happened some centuries later as Christianity, as we're going to see, was wedded to Rome. And the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman part, becomes very important because the pomp and the circumstance, the, the ceremonies, the dress, all of the stuff that you see in the modern Roman Catholic Church, they come from Rome. And they were brought into Christianity from Rome. And we're going to see how that, how that happened. And we'll begin seeing that on page 64, how did we get here. Top of page 64, the first several centuries of the church were tremendously important for its future. It was during these early centuries the church struggled to define itself amidst ever-changing circumstances, both internal and external. During this crucial period, the response of the church was a mixed bag. On the one hand, much valuable work was accomplished with regard to defining and refining orthodoxy that is, right doctrine and teaching. On the other hand, the church adopted a pragmatic stance on many issues that, given time, created problems for it. Now, I just want to summarize what I'm saying there, and then we'll begin looking at it next week. But what I'm saying is this. At the end of the first century, uh, by the time you get to the 100s, which is the second century, by the end of the first century, the apostles have all died. Paul has died. Peter has died. All of the original first followers of Jesus, that we're going to see Jesus endowed with a commission to establish his church, they're all dead. They've left their memoirs behind that we now know as the New Testament. But those memoirs are not collected into a book yet. So you go into the second century, you've got no apostles and you've got no book. So what's going to happen now with the fledgling early church? And a number of issues arise in the, in the second century. You have heretics that are teaching false things about who Jesus was. You have people developing their own books of the Bible. How are you going to pull all this together? And so I say at the top there, that last sentence, the church adopted a pragmatic stance on many issues that given time created problems for it. So there were people who stepped into positions of authority and said, all right, I'll figure this out, we'll figure this out. And over time, that, that we will see, that became a problem for the church 
later. But it started because of this practical issue of the apostles are dead. The scriptures are written, but they're not codified. They're not, they're not collected as yet. So how does the church govern itself? What does it do? And the answers to that then created the seeds for what became the machinery of the, the Roman Catholic Church. So that's what I'm saying at the top of page 64. We're going to look at a brief survey of church history and how that developed starting next week and then uh, go from there. Now, before we leave today, over the next few weeks, we are asking some folks who have been to Israel, who have been to the Holy Land, to take a couple of minutes and share their experiences. Why are we doing this? Because we have planned a Holy Land trip April 21 through 30 of next year. And we're trying to get people to go. So we're doing commercials for the Holy Land trip. Okay? Now, the Holy Land trip costs a little over $3,000 to go. So it's expensive to go. It's a 10-day trip. It's a life-changing trip. I have never been. I'm planning to go, Lord willing. Uh, but I'm told by all that have been able to go that indeed it has that effect. But it's $3,300. So not everybody can, can do that. But if you're able to beg, borrow, we even allow you to steal. We will ask no questions for how you came, <laughs> came up with your check and your money. But we're trying to get enough people to make the Holy Land trip happen the end of April of next year. So to try to get some of you thinking about that, we want to, over the next few weeks, have some folks who have been to the Holy Land talk about their experience there. And uh, Jean has been, and she's got a statement uh, that's a couple minutes long to tell you about her experience. So Jean, if you'll come. It is a jar of rocks, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> I was asked to speak about my trip to Israel in 1996, and I made a few notes that I need to read because I'm a little nervous, but, and brought this jar of rocks. <laughs> a little bit of history about myself. Um, I grew up in a Muslim home, and at the age of six, my father uh, let me attend a local Christian church because I wanted to learn about God, and there wasn't any means of me learning through a, a, a Sunday school or whatever, a church school, or through the mosque because there wasn't there weren't any classes available, and there wasn't a church available for the children. When I was um, 13, there was a class, there was a, a, a mosque Sunday school class available, and so my father told me I wouldn't be able to go to a Christian church anymore, and that was probably a very it was a very traumatic time in my life. A few years later, at the age of 18, I moved and took a job in um, the Lansing area and attended a Presbyterian church. And I could write a book about what happened from that time till 1996, and I was, had an opportunity to visit the Holy, Holy Land. And this, tra this trip changed my life, and naturally I was very unsure what to expect when I arrived there. We were told at the beginning of our tour of the Holy Land that the locations we visited and events that occurred there were either factual or probable. So t today I'm just going to, there was numerous, numerous experiences and it's, it's something that I can't even describe the feelings. But the three of the many experiences I had during that trip that I'm going to share today are baptism, multiplication of fish and loaves, 
and tracing Jesus Christ's footsteps. What a blessing it was to have experienced this trip to Israel. It just brought me so much closer to the Lord, and I just want to share you a little bit more with you. Being baptized in the Jordan River is hard to put into words. There were 1,600 people there that day to be baptized, and the water was cold and deep. And I'm not a water person, and I'm not sure this is, Lord help me, you know. (laughs) The feeling I experienced during that immersion and knowing that Jesus had also been baptized there was simply amazing. We stopped on another day at Taba which represents a beautiful mosaic tile of fish and loaves. And this was the, this was the exact place where Jesus, or a factual place, actual place, where Jesus multiplied the, the two fish and five loaves of barley bread and fed over 5,000 people. Seeing this place where he performed this miracle was worth the trip alone. And the mosaic tile, that you have to see for yourself. It's, it was such, a, such an experience. Also, one day we retraced Jesus' last footsteps by his way of Via Dolorosa and This represented what Jesus would have experienced toward his execution. This jar is filled with rocks, which I collected while on the walk (laughs) because I wanted something that, you know, what can you buy to replace it? But I wanted something that I could just, well, I have it in my sewing room, and every time I walk in there and it's right in front of my eyes, it's just a constant reminder of how fortunate I am to have been there and how fortunate I am to have such a wonderful, awesome, loving Lord. And for those of you, and I know there are those who are concerned with the military presence in Israel, the soldiers, there were a lot of soldiers and there were a lot of soldiers with guns, but they were professional, they were serious, but they were neither, neither intimidating or harassing, and many times they were very helpful. I would recommend this trip and be willing to do it again. Thank you. Thanks, Jean. Thanks, Jean. All right, thanks so much, Jean. We will be dismissed in prayer in just a moment, but uh, two things out of that. Uh, One, three things. One, go, if you can. But uh, two... Uh, for $3,300, this is our version of indulgences. We will baptize you in the Jordan River if you're willing to, if you're willing to, pay, the, if you're willing to pay the money to go. And the other thing is, Gene is wanted in Israel for stealing rocks from their country. So, <laughs> Thanks so much, Gene. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us this week, all right? Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, the blessings of being with your people and being able to open your word and to feed on it. We thank you for this hour as we've been able to look at these matters from church history that have become distorted and that have led many astray. We thank you that we can have this time to think on these things, to have a clear view of where they have come from and how we can be used by you to point people 
to the gospel of your grace. Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us to implement what we have learned this day in our routine this week with our families and at work and at school and the various venues that you've assigned to us. We ask you, Lord, to protect us and watch over us and grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.